Go ahead and uh, grab your Bible, Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available out in the lobby for you. You can grab one of those, take it home with you if you'd like afterwards. Um, we got a lot of work to do this morning, so I know I can talk fast. The test is going to be, can you listen fast? We'll see what happens. Acts chapter 2 is where we are. and just uh, I don't want to preach the, the previous messages uh, over with you, but I just want to make sure that I remind you of where we're at in this context. You, you remember the beginning of Acts chapter 1, the disciples are with Jesus, they're on the mountain, and they're asking him, okay, Lord, is now the time? Is, is this where we get to pay, take our position in your, your cabinet as a, as a political entity? Is this the moment? And Jesus says, stop worrying about that. Instead, you're going to have power, and you're going to be my witnesses. Worry about that. And then as he's speaking, Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples are dumbfounded looking into the clouds and two angels appear. And the angel's like, hey, hey guys, why are you looking into the heavens? That Jesus, that, that same Jesus who just rose before your very eyes, that same Jesus is going to return the same way. So, implication, you should probably get busy about being his witnesses. And then you remember last week, as Pastor Mark uh, showed us, that the question the disciples were really stuck asking is, what now? I mean, yes, he rose, we're supposed to be witnesses, but what do we do? I mean, how, what steps do we take next? How do we do this? And so there was some wrestling there. And Peter, we see this beautiful redemption of Peter occur as he steps forward. The man who just weeks before had, had turned his back on Jesus, who had said, you know, I don't even know that guy's name. There he is standing in front of his peers saying, all right, boys, I've been reading the scripture, I've been talking to God, and I think this is what we need to do. And that gets us to Acts chapter 2. And in what is probably the greatest disservice to this entire chapter in the history of the church, uh, my intent is to, to cover Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36, 37 in all of five minutes. So like I said, I hope you can listen fast. Um, so Peter is there, and this momentous occasion happens. The promise of Jesus Christ was fulfilled in the lives of the disciples and the apostles. The, the, the promised comforter has come. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples, and, and it's like flames of fire come descending on their shoulders is what it said. And, and, it, and it gave them the ability, the, the gift to be able to speak in a language that they never studied before. So now they're speaking the gospel, the good news in all of these different languages, and men and women from all of the, the world are actually gathered together for Pentecost, and what, there's people, starting in verse 9 of chapter 1, they're, they're hearing their own language, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Mesopotamians, the Judeans, the Cappadocians, the Pontians, the Asians, the Phrygians, the Pamphylians, the Egyptians, the Libyans, the Cyrenians, the Romans, the Cretans, the Arabs, they're all, they're all hearing this remarkable good news in their native tongue from people who don't know how to speak in their native tongue. And they're dumbfounded. And they sit down and they consider, and what do they decide is probably the cause for this momentous occasion? What does it mean? They say this in verse 13, <laughs> they're drunk. Because you know just as well as I do, when you get drunk, you know how to speak German without studying it, right? It just rolls right off your tongue once you're a little inebriated. Peter's response is great. Peter's like, guys, come on. It's nine in the morning. We wouldn't be drunk by nine in the morning. We'll just move right past that. <laughs> and Peter, Peter just jumps in with both feet. Peter preaches this message <clears throat> to these thousands of people. 
that is just jam-packed full with truth and courage that you never would have expected to hear from Peter if the last time you saw him was running away from the campfire after he said, I don't know that man. What a beautiful picture of redemption in the life of Peter as he stands before these thousands of people and says, let me explain to you what's happening, people. And I'm going to begin in the prophet of Joel, where he says that God is going to pour out his spirit on all people, and his sons and his daughters are going to prophesy. The young men will see visions. The old men will dream dreams. This is what's occurring before your very eyes today in this place. Verse 19, he also says, I'm going to show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below. And the culminating factor in the Old Testament prophecy is found in verse 21. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's a powerful, powerful application of the Old Testament prophecy. Verse 22, he says, boys, girls, listen up. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by the miracles, wonders, and signs that he performed. And God did those things among you through him as you yourselves know. You know it's true. You saw it, you experienced it, you watched it happen, and Peter, Peter, oh man, Peter drives home his application in verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But then there's this awesome phrase that you find throughout the New Testament. But God, but God, even though you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I mean, that's something to celebrate. That's Peter standing before them saying, this Jesus who you crucified, he's alive. He's alive And he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. God has raised this Jesus to life, verse 32. And we are all witness of it. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. So therefore, verse 36, let all of Israel be assured of one thing. God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, Lord and Messiah. That is not a milky pablum-filled message. That, that, that guy goes beyond meat. That's fire and brimstone by its very definition. He is just letting it rip, and he's holding nothing back. This Jesus who you, along with the wicked men, crucified. Who, who, who killed Jesus? Well, the Romans did, and the Jews did, and you and I did. And this Jesus who you killed, he didn't stay dead. He's alive. He walked out of that tomb on the third day and he still lives to this very moment. And you must be assured that right now, God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. See, Jesus Christ, the perfect one, came to die as the perfect sacrifice to perfect some very imperfect people. And that's the message Peter preaches. And how do the people respond? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what should we do? And Peter responds with this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all, for all whom the Lord our God will call. His answer to, to the heartbreak, to the, 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 the sorrow over their sin, the being cut to their very core, the, the question they ask, what are we to do? His response is, repent and be baptized. Repent, have a, a change in your style of life, in your way of thinking, in your order of priorities. You're walking this way. Repentance is turning around and walking the other way. Repent and be baptized. Let, let, me, let me be clear. The public display of repentance is not when you raise a hand in a service. It's not if you walk an aisle to talk to somebody. The public display that is appropriate in Scripture to your repentance is baptism. Now, it's, it's not for your salvation. I want to be very clear. Some people look at this verse like, see, it says, repent and be baptized. So you have to be baptized to be saved. Well, if you were to take just this passage, you might be able to squint enough to not see the evidence that surrounds it to say that's true. But as you study the New Testament, you will find passages that talk about the, the need of repentance that don't mention baptism. But you'll never find a passage that talks about baptism without the need of repentance. Okay? So this isn't a, a salvation thing. This is a demonstration of something. This is a public display of a, of a spiritual reality. This is, this is your wedding ring. The reality is you're married. You don't need a wedding ring to be married, but you need a wedding ring to tell everybody you're married. So why wouldn't you wear a wedding ring? Put it on. Let the world know. Shout it from the rooftops. I'm spoken for. Tattoo it to your finger if you have to. Whatever you need to do. It's your wedding ring. Baptism is the same. Baptism is, is simply you publicly uh, declaring that you're on his team. And I'm going to associate with these brothers and sisters. And this is my family. And this is the team that I want to be allegiant to. And, and you know what? I'm one of them and I want everybody to know. That was more than five minutes. What happens next is remarkable. As Peter preaches his heart out, and the people ask him the direct question, what do we do next? Peter gives them the, 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 the command, repent and be baptized. And verse 40 is the preacher's verse, just in case you're wondering. It says, with many other words he warned them. It's kind of how we roll as preachers. <laughs> Many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And what happened? Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a remarkable outpouring of grace and mercy into the lives of these people. It's unheard of. The numbers are, are just ridiculous, and it's, it's an amazing testimony to the mercy of God that he would act through someone like Peter to see that many men and women come to know Christ. What happens next is really the point of our morning this morning. What happens next is all of those people who, who made profession of faith, all of those people who called upon the name of the Lord, all of those people who, who came to know Christ that day became active disciples. And so really our, our question today is this, what is a, a faithful disciple? What, what does a faithful disciple do? What does a faithful disciple look like? And that's what we find starting in verse 42. 
It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I think the first thing we see that fills and marks the life of a faithful disciple is that they are teachable. A faithful disciple is teachable. So, so what's interesting about this new group of believers is as, right after they've, they've heard the preaching of Peter, they've just experienced Pentecost, they've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit like has never happened before. They were there, they experienced it, and then they hear the message of the gospel that, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. They call upon the name of the Lord. They, they take Christ as their Savior. They follow him in baptism. What they do next is very important because they don't try to recreate the experience of Pentecost. That would be tempting to do. I mean, that was an amazing service. Let's do that again. But none of them did that. They didn't try to recreate the, 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 the experience at Pentecost. Instead, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted. That, that word means a persistence. It's a, an intense effort. It's, a, it's, it's driving forward in spite of hardship or difficulty. They are, they are committed, and they're committed to the apostles' teaching. The apostles t- passing along their, their eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did, what he said, what he taught, how, and how all of that tied into the Old Testament prophecies and the, the Old Testament covenant being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The apostles would, would sit and take the Old Testament and teach the doctrine out of the Old Testament and show how it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as both Lord and Messiah and Savior and the people were devoted to that teaching. So I just used a word that a lot of people shrink back from. Doctrine. Doctrine is a word that's gotten a really bad rap. Because what's happened is too many people have terminated on doctrine. They sit down and they have a book, they read, they study it, and they get to the end, they're like, good, I know it now. And the truth of the matter is this. Doctrine should never be an end to itself. Ever. When you study the omnipotence of God, his great power, his great strength, his great ability, it shouldn't lead you to ask such foolish questions like, well then can God create a boulder that's too big for him to lift? It should cause you to fall on your face and thank him that he's poured grace and mercy out on you instead of squashing you where you sit for asking such a stupid question. Doxology. That's the, 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 the worship aspect of things. What should happen is this. Doctrine should lead to doxology. As you study who he is and what it is he's done, that should lead you to worship. You should be amazed by the grace that he's poured out on you. You should be amazed that you, of all people, could experience the sweet mercy of God in your life. It should blow you away. It should bring you to the place where you stand in your spot here in this room and we sing songs about him, to him. And it should bring a tear to your eye, a quiver to your lip when you comprehend the fact that the God of all creation reached down from heaven to love you. 
See, the study of doctrine can't be an end in itself. The demons know doctrine. James tells us that the demons, they know God and they, they shudder. Unfortunately, I think what's happened is for many of us, we've studied doctrine, but we don't even shudder. It should cause us to shake in our boots and fall on our faces before this amazing God. We should be devoted and committed to the apostles' teaching, which would lead us to worship. We need to be teachable. We need to hear the things about God and just be overwhelmed with them. We should be students of the word, studying, digging, plowing through it, jumping into it. So, so how do you do that? Okay, so let's just get real specific and applicational here. You should read your Bible. It's not a a ground-shaking application. It's not going to win any awards in a preaching magazine for that application. Read your Bible. Do you? Now, now for many of us, reading our Bible, I shared this about myself even the past couple of weeks, is reading my Bible, I got my chapters out of the way with, okay, I can move on. But that's not what being teachable looks like. Being teachable looks like reading the Bible and asking the hard questions. You're the one who sends the email to the pastors or to the elders. Um, I, got a, um, I had a, a question to ask yesterday uh, at the, the Man versus Meat event, and uh, somebody asked me a question, and, and I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I went home, and it was like, man, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to figure out the answer to that. And I started studying it and dove into it, and I found, <laughs> I am a nerd. I found all this stuff, and, and I sent him this huge email, and his response was like, um, Sorry. Like, no, no, that's good. He's like, yeah, I didn't mean for you to do all that work, though. I'm like, man, I love that stuff. So, so, so are you that person, that teachable person who, who comes across something, and instead of it being like, I just can't figure it out, ah, no big deal. But you want to know. You drive to find the understanding that you're lacking. How can you be teachable? You're here on Sunday morning for the service. Not, not just to say you were here. Not because there's coffee in a nice warm room during the, the late fall and early winter. Not because your friends are here, but you are here every Sunday morning because you want to know him better. That's what it looks like to be teachable. And so as you look at the example of these early believers, what you find is that the faithful disciple was teachable. But, but it goes further than that. The faithful disciple is connected. They're connected. And let me, let me explain what that looks like because there's actually two pieces to that. Not only, uh, they're not just connected, they're connected to other believers in fellowship. If you look at it, they are devoted to the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. And then you skip down to verse 46. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What you see in these faithful disciples is you see this connectedness in fellowship. Now, fellowship is not coffee. It should definitely include coffee, But fellowship is not just coffee. Fellowship is from the the Greek word koinonia. The root word is koinos there, and it means common. So like if if you're going to study the the Greek of the New Testament, it's written in a type of Greek called koine Greek. That's the the common Greek for the common person on the street. It wasn't the the highfalutin Greek. It was just the the common everyday Joe kind of Greek. So, So he says that's common so, so fellowship is to share something in common with someone. So what do we have in common? When we don't have geographical locations, we don't have our, our ethnic similarities, but it's not preferences on our food choices. In this room, we don't even have the same sports teams that we cheer for in common, do we? 
I mean, I may be the one. There may be two, maybe, but they're, they're quiet. They don't say anything because they're afraid of you. Patriots, right? And you got Ravens, Redskins, a couple of, of Giants fans who uh, should hide, but that's okay. Um, but in that, I mean, I, we don't share that in common. I, don't, I couldn't stand in front and explain to you, yes, I'm excited Tom Brady comes back today. I'm really excited about that. But I'm more excited that Rob Ninkovich comes back. And you guys are going to be like, Ninkovich, is that a sandwich or something? What is that? I don't so we don't have that in common. But you know what we do have in common? We have the same father. We share Christ together. John 1 says this to us, to, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but they were born of God. See, what we have in common is that we're a family. We are a, a family united around our common Savior, Jesus Christ. And we've got to be completely honest. Look around the room. We are a motley crew of a brunch, right? We do not have a whole lot in, in common with each other, but but we do have this profound experience of redemption that unites us as family. And so the faithful disciple is connected to other disciples as family. So what does that look like? Well, think about it. Uh, (laughs) If you think about uh, holidays in your family tradition and what your family does on certain holidays, you may be like, definitely not that. That's not what we want to look like. But I promise you that a family event doesn't look like you showing up, sitting down, looking straight ahead like you're riding a bus, then standing up, head down, walking out to the parking lot and driving away. That, that's, that's not what you do at Thanksgiving with your family, is it? But on the flip side, I'm going to be completely honest with you, family isn't walking through the door pretending like everything's okay, giving everybody hugs and kisses and high fives all the time, being like, oh, everything's wonderful, yippee! <laughs> and then you walk out, you're never serious, and you, you never show what's really going on in your heart. That's not family either, is it? See, being a family isn't superficial. It's not artificial, but it's reality. So, so let me ask you this question. What, what does it say that you can go to a stadium and high-five somebody who you don't know, who doesn't know you, and you really don't even want them to know you because you don't want them following you home at the end of the game, but you'll give them a high-five when a 22-year-old runs something back for a touchdown. You're like, yeah! Ooh, like you go way back to the old childhood days. And yet somebody in your church family gets ridiculously good news, and you don't even crack a smile. What does it say about your Willingness to be connected to other believers. Now, I say that, but now I certainly want to make sure I take time to commend you. Because I have been reminded time and time again over the past few weeks of how you've loved and cared for the Smith family. Through Madeline's surgery this week, through a lot of the ups and downs, um, I find it, this week I found it hilarious that I'd get a text with an update about how things went, and then I'd get on Facebook, and she had just posted the update almost five minutes earlier, and there's 90-something comments on it already. I mean, you guys have done a wonderful job surrounding the Smith family, so I certainly don't want to move through this and ignore that. That's something we should celebrate, and that's something we need to continue to look to do. These early disciples, they weren't just showing up at church and drinking coffee together. 
They were out in the real world together. They're meeting in each other's homes. They're sharing a meal. They're breaking bread. They're laughing. They're crying. They're rebuking. They're encouraging each other. They're, they're <clears throat> falling in on each other. Why? Because of what we have in common, which is Christ. So, how can we be better connected to other believers? Well, small groups, community groups, those two right there, just, just saying, we're, we're working through the process of making those more clear and easy, easily identifiable and, and, and easy to get into. And we're going to kick off a number of new groups once we come around the, the calendar year. But we have a number of existing groups. And so if you're interested in that, put something on your connection card, drop it in, and we'll, we'll try to get you tied in. But, but that's one way to do it because you're living life with people. Real life, not the superficial, artificial, just kind of float in and float out. It's really showing up in each other's life. How else can you be connected to other people? Well, show up early to service. Stay late. Come in and get a cup of coffee. And just hang out in the lobby and get to know people. Maybe this week, the way that you can be more connected to other people here in your church family is, is send an email or a Facebook message or a day or a, a note every day to a brother or sister in Christ who's here at Uniontown. Maybe you could do that. There's all kinds of ways for us to get connected. So we're connected, and we're connected to other believers, but we're also connected to God. I mean, as you look at this, they devoted themselves to the prayers. So as they prepared to go into the world, they prayed. I mean, that could be formal temple prayers. It could be prayers that everybody's familiar with, but either way, it was, it was definitely prayer with friends. And so they had this hungering for God and God's will that was demonstrated by, by a pursuit of God in prayer. We talked about it last week, how they were praying for God to grant wisdom in their decision making in Acts chapter 1. Then you go to Acts chapter 4 and they're praying for boldness and courage in spite of the persecution and the difficulty. You go to Acts chapter 12, it's probably my favorite illustration of prayer in the entire scripture. In Acts chapter 12, you have a, a church meeting in a home and they're adamantly praying for Peter who has been arrested and put in jail. And they are in this home and they are just, I mean, they are hooting and hollering praying. This isn't just the, the neat one you do at McDonald's when everybody's looking. This was, they are bearing their souls to God in prayer. And there's a knock on the door and little Rhoda, the servant girl, goes to answer the door and she says, who is it? And it's Peter, it's Peter, let me in, it's Peter. Uh, and she freaks out. She runs to the prayer meeting. Where? In the other room. How weird is it? They're on their knees praying. God, would you let Peter get out of jail, please? Would you protect Peter? And Rhoda's like, excuse me? Excuse me, guys? Uh, Peter's at the door. And their response is mind-blowing. But no, he's not. We're praying for him to be released. And meanwhile, Peter's like, guys, seriously, they're going to find me. Let me in, would you? It's this... This, this pouring out on communal prayer, praying for that immediate need in Peter's life. There's prayer in the midst of difficulty in Acts chapter 16. They're not just begging for an answer, but instead they're making sure they take the time to rehearse God's past goodness to them. When they pray, they demonstrate a dependence on God's strength, his wisdom, his confidence, and his hope. So one of the the hallmarks of a faithful disciple is they're connected to God in prayer. So how can you be more connected to God in prayer? So a couple of quick ones for you. Here's, this one's novel too. Pray. Did I get an award for that one? No? Okay. <clears throat> pray. 
spend time praying. There's, there's a number of systems that you could use to, to bring to memory the things that you want to remember to pray for. Um, the old note card system is a great one. Just get three by five cards, write a prayer request on it, drop it in one of those three by five boxes, and then just, just rotate through them. So you pick one out, and then today I'm praying for, <clears throat> for Madeline Smith. Put that in the back. And the next day, or the next time you're ready to pray, you pull another one. Today I'm praying for, for our, our missionaries in New Zealand. And that today I'm praying for, and just continue to cycle through it. If you're a, a technology geek like I am, because I love technology, there's a wonderful app for your iPad or your iPhone, and it's called Prayer Mate. Prayer Mate. And, and it's the same concept as the note cards. It just does it in an electronic form for you. And so you can cycle through those things. Here's another way um, that you can pray. So next week at 9.30, for this service it'll be, not 9.30, that would be really awkward. In the middle of 10.30, there we go. Next week at 10.30, we're going to meet probably in room 101, I'm not sure yet, but we're going to meet together and pray for the service. So then we're having one in the, in, in the morning at 8.30, and we'll do it again at 10.30. And we're going to pray specifically for those who are coming to Uniontown to hear the preaching of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes and draw them to Christ, that he would give boldness and courage to believers in Jesus Christ, and that they might pursue him and fix their eyes on Christ regardless of all the craziness and hubbub that's going on around them. So that's just another practical application of how you can do it. And that brings us to our last hallmark of a faithful disciple that's found in this passage, and it's this. They are generous. You look, <clears throat> verse 45, they sold property and possessions and they gave to anybody who had need. So, so just a couple of quick points on that. This isn't communism where everybody's required to give a certain amount and they can't keep anything above said amount. It's not communalism where, where, where everything is kept all uh, tightly held within an organization. This is a philosophy of these early disciples where they hold people in higher esteem than possessions. So instead of looking at all that they have, they're more concerned about the people who are in their lives than they are any of their possessions. So what motivates that? What, what drives them to generosity? Well, well, it's not because it's commanded to be generous. It's not because it's easy for them to give. It's not because they've come into a, a sudden financial windfall. It's not expecting anything in return for your generosity or for your giving. You, you are motivated to give out of generosity because of this very simple thing. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What motivated the, these young disciples' generosity was this overflowing of thankfulness and gratefulness for the greatest act of generosity that has ever been seen. The, the perfect, humble generosity displayed by God as he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, and to rise again from the grave. And that grace that he gave is, is unconditional, undeserved, unearned. And we're the recipients of it. And so when you understand the amazing generosity that's been given to you, that should motivate a spirit of generosity to others around you. Here, here's an amazing thing. One of the other motivating factors of generosity is simply because 
we want to look more like God himself. God was generous and, and, and gave us his son in such a way that we can't even begin to fathom. That's, that's a generosity that's hard to attain to, but, but we want to look like daddy. So my boys, there was some Awana dress-up day thing years ago, and the boys decided that they were going to go to Awana dressed like me. And so they put on their golf attire, they drew on the false goatees, and then, because they're committed. You know, I look back at those pictures, and it just cracks me up. But as a dad, dad, when you watch your child trying to act like you, doesn't it put a smile on your face? Doesn't it just cheer you to the core? Or terrify you, just going to be honest. You know what puts a smile on God's face? Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. When, 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 when God catches you trying to be generous like he was generous, it puts a smile on his face. Isn't that what this is all about? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, listen, no matter where we are, whether we're present or absent, whether we're near or far, everything we do is with one purpose, to please him. That's what should drive us as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. So we've been asking a lot of questions about what if. So what if, what if we were really committed to personal discipleship? What if each and every one of us really identified those hallmarks of, of faithful discipleship, of being teachable and of being committed to each other and being committed to God in prayer and being generous? What if, what if we were really committed to personal discipleship? What could happen? What could happen? The church may not burst at the seams numerically, and that's okay, because that's not what we're here for. But if we carry with us the hallmarks of a faithful disciple, then we are going to have a heavenly father with a big old smile on his face. Man, is that beautiful? Isn't that what we're after? Whether we're present or absent, we make it our aim to please him. What if? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that is in it. I thank you for the reminders that we have in your word to follow you relentlessly and ferociously. God, I pray you'd give us the ability to do just that. Lord, I pray that as we follow you, that we'd be so overwhelmed with your generosity and grace toward us that we would be generous and we would be marked as people of grace. Father, may we commit to each other, to serving one another, to loving one another, to, to praying and spending time with you, concentrated time with you, and then being teachable and, and willing to sit under your word. God, change us. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.